Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion that from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Oh, you can't start every podcast like that. I can. And I will, <laughs> I will until I've got something to be infused about. Um, well, I should. General election soon. Hopefully. Maybe. Or, or nothing. <laughs> um, well, you know, maybe. Well, there's, it could be a general election or going on, going how everything else is going, maybe. Jeremy Corbyn is assassinated by a satanic Nazi who used to be in the forces and Tom Watson becomes leader of the Labour Party. They push for a second referendum. They're destroyed in a general election. And a referendum. Yes. Um, And we end up with the hardest of hard Brexits led by Jacob Rees-Mogg and his weird satanic Nazis. Sorry, I've been reading a lot about satanic Nazis today. That'll be a later episode. Um, The... uh, yeah, so today there was um, a video came out on Twitter uh, of para. I was just thinking like they should have posted it to TikTok and they could have done it to a they could have done it to a Panic at the Disco song. You just the only reason is you want TikTok to overtake Twitter because you're yes. far more comfortable staring at pictures of fifteen year old videos of fifteen year olds flossing <laughs> than you are of reading good, honest, informed journalism like. Troopers shooting a picture of Jeremy Corbyn in Kabul. I do not spend all my time staring at 15 year olds flossing. I spend most of my time on TikTok looking at 30 year olds flossing. <laughs> well, there is that. But it's um the right wingers on TikTok, I'm obsessed with them. Uh, okay. Because they're amazing. Like just distilling their anger at people who don't like Trump into eight second videos. Oh, so like if they're not on Facebook, is that where they've all where they all are? Yeah. One guy said, Oh, you snowflakes telling me to get off TikTok. I've already been banned off Twitter. <laughs> and that was it. That was his only video. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but yeah, so Jeremy Corbyn, um, there were a bunch of paras. They were practicing shooting an unarmed elderly man, which, you know, they don't need to do. No. Because that's literally... You'd imagine they'd get plenty of practice at that. Um, well, maybe this generation haven't had that much practice shooting a white man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know... <sighs> there was obviously an uproar about this. and uh, I don't know if it didn't, was an uproar. Didn't somehow stop... <laughs> Uh, Sky News uh, reporting it as well, of course. You have to take into account that there have been doubts about Jeremy Corbyn's security yep. credentials. Yep. Fuck off. Um, there were people just, saying, like, oh. well, you know, obviously um, Soldier F has just been sent down, so obviously the powers are going to be angry. It's like, oh yeah, because one of them got caught. One of them got in trouble for one of the many, many, many things that the powers have done. <laughs> Yeah, it's oh. It's just a. It, I, I suppose it's a more obvious example of the kind of acceleration of not just political resistance to Jeremy Corbyn, but mm. actually like physic, like th- like physical violence, and that yeah, he's had a lot of like there has always been an element of that in like you know fascist circles, obviously, mm. but it's never felt quite as in tune with what the Conservative Party and the you know the opposition to. To to like the left wing, yeah, but has felt like in a, in a long time. The Labour you know? Party is well, it isn't, but um, the Labour Party is lefter than it's been in a long time. Yes, um, which like you could, like, you couldn't see them doing this to Ed Miliband. No, um, they just you know make up lies about his dad. Um, because in, in their hearts, I don't think they would believe it anyway. Yeah, if it was about Ed Miliband, yeah. I don't think they would believe it. Yeah, um, I think the thing that is kind of worrying is. Well, it's hard to tell because, like, I reckon the av like the what well, they've already had is so terrible because, like, the, they're investigating this now, mm. and the person investigating it is that one is that 
general or whatever, whatever. I don't understand military ranks. Um, the S rank officer. <laughs> um, the one who's high up in the clan. Um, he was the one who said about how, you know, you could see a military coup happening. If yeah, Jeremy Corbyn was, uh, was they, they would refuse. There's an interesting kind of like... So he seems like the one, the best one to like to look into this. Because that was based on the idea that Jeremy Corbyn would try and leave, like Labour, if they got in power, would try and leave NATO. Yep. Would somehow reverse all of the uh, like foreign policy yep. positions that Britain has held over the last like thirty years. Tie or up so. the Queen and deliver her to Jerry Adams. Yeah, um, and it, it's ju- it is just fascinating because they go on and on about this neutrality, neutrality, neutrality. Uh, all of our troopers must be non-political. You know, mm-hmm. soldiers must be non-political all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, not only ignores that. No, that's not going to happen. If there is, ever is a real threat to that kind of foreign policy. Yeah like the the foreign policy structure in this country they will absolutely intervene as much and as often as mm. they they can mm. um and the, the 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 lie of that is the idea that somehow supporting saudi arabia uh you know egypt um what whatever like geopolitical actors mm-hmm. supporting one side of that it would be utterly uh, like detrimental to to the say just switch over, which Corbyn isn't going to do. No. But suppose that there were like he is the kind of clownish straw man who they paint him as, and he did become prime minister and he did say, well, we're going to support Hamas, mm-hmm. we're going to support I don't know uh, Iran, all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. like considering the track records of both sides, there's no real particular like mor. There's no moral. Yeah, there's no obvious moral choice in that other than not to do that stuff at all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's how embedded those particular set of alliances and geopolitics ones. is within a lot of people. You yeah, know? it's um the it's an extension of the Tories being Tories don't make political decisions with the economy; they make the yeah. right decisions. Yeah, and it, it's just that. Um, but it's it's like that. The bloke, the head of what of their little gang, was saying like, "Oh, um, this is very bad, but you've got to remember that we've always got to be apolitical." And it is obvious that it's just we've got to remember that the grunts on the ground need to be a bit smarter and not get caught while we're being the blood-soaked, hard, like armored wing of the state mm. doing our stuff. It's just insane. Like when is you can't have an apolitical army? No. Well, you can't have an apolitical person for no. a start. But the fact that the way they're used, you're never going to use They're the them. violent arm of the state. They're yeah. about as political as it gets. Yeah. The fact that that's directed at, say, foreigners yeah. um, and, and, and poor people, it, that, that is always a political decision. And we definitely have forgotten that. Mm. You know, like yeah. th- that definitely gets obscured a lot. Yeah. There's, um, there was an interesting thread a few, I want to say a couple of months ago, um, that I thought was overblown at the time. So it was someone from uh, the f- like what was formerly Yugoslavia set talking about how the the Balkans wars started. You know, Serbia, Croatia, um, Bosnia. How how those how those conflicts started, and how Yugoslavia broke up, and how divi- divisions like those opened up by Brexit can suddenly take on a very very serious uh, thing. Yeah. And, and I read that at the time, and I thought that's it's interesting, but I don't think. I don't think it's an apt comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of various different reasons why why it's not. You know, I mean, there's 
um, it, it, I don't think it was primarily an ethnic conflict, but it certainly was like a, the part of the fallout of, mm. of the Soviet Union, like a larger kind of um, social system, like they, in, they put it into. Yugoslavia also had a standing, like had, had conscription, mm. had a standing army. One of the interesting facts that I do, I don't know a lot about the Yugoslav conflict, but I do know that one of the main reasons why it happened was that the joint Yugoslav forces. Um, all of the top positions started being taken over by uh, Serbs mm. and started recruiting mainly from Serb areas. So when the time came for you know the disintegration of Yugoslavia, yeah. um, a lot of the, the kind of weapons and, and the military hardware was in the hands of of, of Serbians. Yeah. Um, so when a, a nationalist like Milosevic comes along, he can he can do his do his dirty business much easier. And I was like, well, that doesn't really apply because you know there's not conscription in the UK. There's there's very little kind of intra-British ethnic conflict in groups. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm not talking... Like, I guess... I suppose there could be if you can... Yeah. I mean, race-based violence, obviously, is always a is always a risk in the, in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, we just need to... Like, what, but they the have... Way the, way the, the discussion of Irish people in the last couple of years has genuinely... Well, not shocked me, because there's nothing that really shocks me about how nasty, like, the British press and population get mm. but um it's kind it is a bit shocking just how quickly it went back to that yeah i, so I suppose I that's what, i don't think anyone's suppose, really that safe from that kind of i suppose you know, that 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 I had an old woman on the radio talking about the barnet formula and was pretty much using it as justification for starving scotland until they sided with us <laughs> so maybe you know back to the old tactics yeah <laughs> and it's just ugh. um yeah, and, and it was just that thread about Yugoslavia just kind of... At the time, I thought, well, that's it. that seems a little bit far-fetched. You mm. know, the British state is nothing if not completely centralised and, and not divided around down those particular ethnic lines mm. because one, ethnic, one ethnicity and one particular social class has been in control for, yeah. for so long. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the... It, that's a... If you like, that's kind of what Serbia mm. would have liked to maybe... Uh, you know, emulate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, stuff like this and the fact that it looks like if it were on shaky camcorder footage for, and had, like had a date stamp of 1993, mm. it would look like one of those videos that yeah, was coming definitely. out before of like whipping up, whipping up hatred and, yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Um, there was, it's some... a, it got me a little bit, a little bit worried. Yeah. There was some, there were people phoning it to the radio, justifying it. Saying like, oh, they're just letting off steam. Normally, they're just doing they're shooting pictures of celebrity paedophiles. It's like, yeah, that seems perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah, because Gary Glitter, Jimmy Savile, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> um, there were lots of people talking on Twitter, which is the cor- uh, important thing. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's not the one that's going to send them to wars to to be mutilated and maimed and come back with PTSD and then let, expect them to live on the streets. Yeah, yeah, but that's. You know, the army never sides with the left until it does. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember there was a few years ago when you were talking about some argument you'd had with, uh, with a liberal Democrat. And uh, you were talking about kind of the, the tyranny. You, you were talking in your own inimitable way about like the tyranny of the civil service or something. Um, the tyranny of the British state. And you were like, well, why don't you do something about it? It's like, because they've got all the guns! Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, 
it's not until stuff like this comes up that you realise exactly, you, you kind of look at it and you see where those that kind of violence, state violence lies mm. and the kind of people that it's in the hands of. Mm-hmm. You know? It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's super grim. But it's okay. I'm sure that 30 years from now, when the investigation is finished, <laughs> Soldier Z will be given a slap on the wrist. <laughs> Soldier ZF. <laughs> yeah. Because they'll have gone through that many. Yes. Eh, I don't yeah. know. Soldier G. <laughs> I don't think they will. Yeah. Um, yeah. So last week we talked about uh, Operation Legacy and the kind of formal repression of historical inquiry into yeah. the into the British Empire. Yeah. This week uh, I wanted to talk more about the kind of cultural and informal amnesia that's governed our, our memories of the empire. Yeah. You know. Um, the most common recent example of the empire being brought into kind of general discourse has been obviously Brexit. Yeah. Um, a very common view is that Brexit is kind of the, re- the, the revenge of the empire, the return of the, of the empire, the empire strikes back, etc., etc., etc. Um, and it was a very, very common take. It was among, among certainly among, among, uh, liberals, and and some quite a lot of socialists as well that this undercurrent of nostalgia combined with racism the racism birthed in the kind of modern empire period had kind of returned with an event with with mm. a vengeance mm-hmm. and that by seeking to separate itself from the eu britain had sought a kind of an uh, to reinvigorate itself by kind of declaring that it was like a a, a a trading nation again to recapture the same kind of spirit that that they say built the empire. Yeah. Um, there are two kind of factors to this that were commonly put about by the right around the Brexit referendum was that yeah you could return to the days of free trade and freewheeling privateers. Yeah. And that you could they could quote like a lot of kind of stuff around doing quote unquote doing something about multiculturalism. Yeah. Um, both of which are our legacies of the empire, but I personally, yeah. I'm going to say that I do think empire as an explanation for Brexit is a little bit overinflated. Um, I think that there's definitely a f- thick vein running through hmm. us, uh, like our parents' generation. Yeah, of that being it, it's literally the kind of like whenever you hear someone who is over the age of sixty saying sovereignty. And they and you go look at they talk about what it was like before we went in. So they talk mm. about when did we go in the seventies, yeah, which is like when we're really getting into giving up the empire. Mm. And they, they it's, I'm, it's like I know it's indelibly linked in my mother's head, yeah, that we lost the empire and we got what, yeah, I suppose I think I'm like French, like I think the kind of the ideology and the kind of aesthetics of it, uh, especially coming away from the. Um, like make do and mend austerity years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they do play a role, but as a as a kind of realizable political project, yeah. I think that's where it kind of falls down because it lacks like a lot of countries have those kind of revanchist myths. That's yeah. when you kind of long for a lost a mm-hmm. return to a lost golden age or a lost lost territory. So like uh, like Greater Israel is yeah. kind of a revanchist uh, fantasy. Greater yeah. Serbia, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But those kind of examples have like concrete 
aims. They're either yeah. territorial or political. They have those those specific ways that they view that this 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 could be achieved. Mm. The Empire nostalgia, I think, probably slides into more like a the Lacanian object pity ah yeah that's right I read an introduction to Lacan seven years ago on a train <laughs> ask me anything upside down while leaning over someone's shoulder <laughs> yeah I think it was actually the graphical guide it had loads of cartoons <laughs> yeah fantastic it was very good um, in the like the, the, the nostalgia for the empire mm. is, is in so far as it is fleshed out as a political aim is kind of this Un, it, like like with the Lacanian thing, it's an unattainable object. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a an aim that can never possibly be achieved, mm-hmm. and it takes its place honestly with along with a, most other political projects to reforge Britain. I mean, you've we've heard about for the last 30, 40 years the new like the new Britain. What's yeah. the new Britain going to be? Yeah, you know, is it going to be New Singapore or is it going to be? You know, um, New Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be you know the 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 center of banking or you know is it going to be the 51st state of the US that was that's something that stretches back to the second world war is it going to be the the outpost of kind of Pax Americana of Americanism that itself is a way of transforming like a British national goal and sense of self and sense of place in the world I'd say that yeah I see that but I don't well I don't think that the leave campaign was pushing this notion of I don't think they were actively planning to have Empire two point oh. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. Yeah, because yeah. these people I mean the that people, was a joke. The, the pe- that was yeah. a joke and was ridiculed immediately yeah, when the it pe- came out the Well service. yeah, that's yeah. the thing. The people who are pushing for leaving, their their plan has always been like strip and sell everything. Yeah. Become Singapore. Yeah. While living in Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> um do you know what I mean? That's the kind of thing that they want. But they've done the kind of same thing that like an awful lot of the Leave campaign, um, and as well with the Remain campaign, it's based on not on actually what it is, but letting people believe something yeah. and never correcting them. What's interesting about all of those ideas as well, you know, tech utopia, mm. banking utopia, offshore trading hub or mm. whatever, is that they most often don't take into account the people who live in the UK mm-hmm. all of the people who live in the UK it, it doesn't it doesn't have an actual plan to involve people in it yeah. people are kind of it's very much like elite politics it's yeah. if I do this thing in parliament if I enact these policies then things will change yeah. without actually like, I was thinking about like of all the kind of moulds that people like the political system has tried to force the UK into like Call Britannia is probably the closest that ever came to actually involving its people in the project because those it's because those like a caricature of its people. Of course, yeah, 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 of course. It's the very lightest and most unserious of political projects, but it at least recognised that the stuff that was going to make Britain great again yeah. or whatever was gonna have to come from from its people and not from, you know, cutting taxes yeah. or, you know, building higher skyscrapers on the Isle of Dogs. Yeah. Well, um, one thing it's like I do think that they fully let my parents believe that we'd go back to being like the empire. Yeah, yeah. They 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 literally talk about that. The sovereignty people literally talk about us never having to listen to anybody. That's like full blown empire mm-hmm. bollocks. They have this, and it's never. It's not that that was the explicit plan. In the same way that. Hillary in America was not a feminist. 
but there were plenty of people who didn't pay too much attention to politics who did manage to put on her this notion of feminism. Right, okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, yeah. like um, you see it with people when they put on to Theresa May hmm. attributes that do not exist. Hmm. Um, happens to a lesser extent with Corbyn um, because it's harder, because people are shouting at you that you're yeah, wrong yeah. all the time. But, but also um, he takes an act, like, for his, to his credit, he takes an act, when he's doing, like, when he's, putting forward some of these policies he is actually taking an active role and saying this is what will happen as opposed yeah. to trying to conjure uh visions of and only visions of future utopias he's mm-hmm. saying i'm going to do this in the immediate term to make things better yeah you know yeah but um yeah that's the thing i do think yeah i think that they mm. allowed that belief to be put on them in like um, you know, it's happening a lot with America at the moment because it seems that that's all American elections are now. Yes, yeah, definitely. Is, um, having who can be the most attractive sponge for people's beliefs. Which uh, it's con- it's consumer politics. You yeah, know, that they've re- they reduced the democratic process to which politician would you like to consume? What, yeah. what would you like to see more of? That's that's literally how Trump got elected. Yeah, he's a TV star and you watch telly all the time and you want some more entertainment. Yeah, so elect Donald Trump as president. Yeah. You know, it, it conjoined in a way that it maybe hadn't before, but probably we should have predicted would. Yeah. You know? Um, but I think, like, as far as the kind of empire goes, I think there does have to be... Because the obvious thing about this 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 whole Brexit as imperialism um, theory goes is that there's a huge hole in the middle of it around all of these symbols, around all the symbols of wooden sailing ships going, carrying spices and... <laughs> You know, uh, slaves. Make, uh, what's the keep calm and uh, the tea towel? Uh, keep calm, carry on. Yeah, that whole thing. Um, there's a big hole in the middle of it, which is the empire itself. Mm-hmm. And I think we shouldn't confuse imperial nostalgia necessarily yeah. with imperial amnesia. Yeah, yeah. You know? the the um, oh, the, the the fact that people seem to think that the British Empire was literally a trading block. Yeah, yeah. It's a competing trading block, which is where it gets compared to the EU. Yeah. Which they, they, in their minds, there are only empires. There are only those kind of empires, and a lot of the education, as sparse as it has been, especially in the last twenty years or so, has painted the empire as, well, not the best option, but the most benign of the ones that mm. we have. Actually, to be fair, there's like a lot of, especially recently, comparison between the old empire and the EU with like. Camps in Northern Africa and <laughs> yeah, work yeah. camps in mm. Eritrea. <laughs> but interestingly, not about policing its borders. Yeah, mm. there's there's this huge gap in people's education about the the empire. Um, somewhere between ended the slave trade mm. and wasn't as bad as France in the film mm. The Battle of Algiers. <laughs> there's this huge gap. Yeah, there is this this. Huge gap, and like the the things that they take from them, but are, exa- are like that's correct. They are the things that the Brexit Leave campaign mobilised, which are trade and this other like nebulous notion of like vitality. Yeah, the empire on uh, from the right, the empire is this source of energy, and it's that combines kind of Thatcherism and Blairism in a, in a way because they were all very concerned with shedding off the old ways of doing things oh. shedding off uh, getting rid of the old guard which you know they, they point their they, they point at different things as being old and out of date and useless but what what holds true of that is that they're all in search of this kind of new energy and for yeah. Brexiteers that comes from 
empire, particularly the like the pioneering, you know, the Francis Drakes and the yeah. Clive of India's. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. You know, that's where it comes from. Cecil um, Rhodes. And yeah, yeah, Cecil Rhodes, exactly. Um, and like this hasn't come about from nowhere. Uh, the education system in the 1900s kind of lauded the empire as kind of the, the greatest thing and it was it was considered like this very selfless act mm. the civilizing mission mobilizing people to go hundreds of miles from from their their homes to foreign lands to like civilize people and if you you know there was this notion that if you were building bridges and getting paid hundreds of thousands of pounds for it that somehow you were being selfless because yeah. you shouldn't have been there yeah it's a weird kind of cosmopolitan xenophobia so yeah. it's, it's an odd thing um after decolonization, I don't think there was the same level of imperial, like popular education. Mm. Um, it was always discussed in academia, it still is. Uh, the legacy of the empire and, and how it was built and everything, its structures and its processes. But it really wasn't raised, it didn't start to be raised again. I don't think, other than like maybe brief flourishes with particular parts of the empire, like India and. and um, the Middle East and, and stuff like that didn't really start to come about again and probably until like the early 2000s mm. uh, with Neil Ferguson that's when mm. liberal inter when the context for it is liberal in liberal yeah. interventionism and troops going overseas and again adopting a new civilizing mission like yeah. Blair talking about it is, is like Reagan talking about Vietnam it's like through blood we have to you know re restart our historic national mission yeah <clears throat> um, but I mean in, in, in popular education uh, the real kind of it, it really came up when the Conservatives got into power um, yeah. particularly Michael Gove as education secretary um, so there's always been this tendency for politicians to argue for a positive uh, rendering of the national past and having pride in your accomplish in, in the accomplishments of your nation it kind of establishes this continuity that they feel that is not only necessary for social cohesion but kind of you ride through onto obvious policy ends yeah. so when we were talking earlier about it being obvious that say the UK supports Saudi Arabia by educating people about the history of Britain's involvement with the Middle East they establish this continuity that excuses their actions in the present yeah. do you know what I mean? definitely um, it's uh, yeah I mean Kenneth Baker under under Margaret Thatcher who was the kind of uh, the education secretary who was kind of the father of the national curriculum which of mm -hmm. course didn't exist before Thatcher um, he argued that uh, quote pupils should be taught about the spread of Britain's influence for good throughout the empire in the 18th and 19th centuries these things are matters in which we should take great pride now, when the Tories took hold of power in 2010, there was this kind of long-standing element in their pitch. Although they were pitching that they were modern Tories, that they were green, you know, the hugger hoodie yeah. shit, all that kind of stuff, that they were the liberal Tories, there was still this element of the, the idea that they were reclaiming British society and mm. British institutions after, after New Labour. New Labour, no matter how authoritarian they were, never managed to shake off the notion that they were like the liberal class, that they were the politically yeah. correct cosmopolitan class. And, and that was definitely reflected in the way that the Tories kind of behaved afterwards. You mm -hmm. know, you would, they came back and suddenly it was like, oh yeah, these are exactly the same Tories as when we left them. Yeah. Um, and they had this idea of, you know, reclaiming 
education specifically, and they put Michael Gove, who is a hardline right winger, um, yeah. with. And he started saying things that were very obviously designed to start some kind of like culture war around mm. education, which had been very reasonably successful in the in the U.S. culture wars. You know, mm. that's how you get uh, like magnet schools and and like uh, what they call chart schools um, by targeting teaching unions and public schools and things like that. You you force through those education reforms and you drive a wedge between mm. teachers and parents and teachers and, and the like public at large in order to, you know, they engineer their particular view of, of, of those teachers. Because, um, like, yeah, you remember there were two things specifically. You remember when, uh, I think it was David Cameron during a speech on Scottish independence, he started talking about how one of his favourite books when he was growing up was a book called Our Island Story. Yep. And I started seeing it being sold in uh, Waterstones, mm-hmm. like at the at the front where all yeah. the books they actually want to sell are. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a fairly like Whiggish history of a continuity. The British, the English, have always you know fought for their rights and liberties, and it's been a slow, steady process to the perfection that we have now in 1910. Yeah. Uh, it also <laughs> describes Maoris as savage cannibals. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then. Um, in the Olympic opening ceremony in 2012, uh, the MP Aidan Burley um, said that the opening cer- ceremony was lefty multicultural crap, the most lefty opening ceremony I have ever seen. More than Beijing, the capital of a communist state. Welfare tribute next. Bring back the Red Arrows, Shakespeare and the Stones. <laughs> the Stones. I hate we should have so fucking much. seen it coming. Oh, because, of course, they like in the 80s, they wouldn't have liked the Rolling Stones. They no. would have liked someone else. But the pattern is so similar. Um, and it makes you sick, doesn't it? Yeah, the only person I've ever known who actively liked the Rolling Stones was, is, well, he's dead now, was one of the most right-wing people I've ever known who offered to knock my teeth in when I was 14. Oh, really? Were you having problems with your teeth or something? <laughs> yeah, like a backyard dentist. I think I am. Um, I answered back. Oh. Oh, one of that. yeah. One of those men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, aside from anything, that Olympic opening ceremony, it's like, oh, it's so left-wing, this, this opening ceremony that includes for a moment the working people of Britain. <laughs> You remember all those trade union bar- bar- banners with dancing Isambard Kingdom Brunels on them? Like, it's yeah. not like it wasn't exactly no, like, like a fucking. It, had the wind it was a up. perfect it had like, post liberal. It, it had West Indian families smiling. Yeah. Rather than creeping. And Bangra dancers. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're, see, that's not true. That's not how they go. <laughs> you know full well that they creep and they steal. <laughs> That's just the idea of this Tories 2012 opening ceremony. And it's like, ah, look, and here is our pure white nation beset by evil. (laughs) Just Bioshock Infinite posters everywhere. Protect your women from the savage heathen, that kind of shit. I could see that being our next... Of our next opening ceremony, if it carries on the way it's now, it's like it was just I don't know. I I had no problem with the 2012 ceremony right. in and of itself. It was like fine, yeah. But I some people realize. apparently thought it was this radical act of, yeah. of <clears throat> uh, national and cultural Marxism. Well, yeah, there's like a big chunk of people who thought it was the evilest thing they've ever seen, and then another load of people was it was the second coming of Christ that have seemed to have based yeah, yes. a cloud look on it. <laughs> Which has also driven them completely insane as well. <laughs> it's it's weird. I, I, it... Signs and symbols are very <laughs> important. Yeah. Where do riots start? At funerals. 
because it doesn't matter about the person who died it matters about like funerals being attacked that's what like mm. all the IRA stuff yeah um, with, like most of the kind of attacks and most of the kind of retaliatory acts mm. it happens in um, uh, Palestine and, and yeah. Yemen quite a lot as well most of the violent acts will happen at kind of funerals or, yeah. or, 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 or mass cultural occasions so mm. like they have they have power mm-hmm. you know um, so yeah Michael Gove uh, became education secretary when the Tories came in and he spent a lot of time arguing for a more positive view of the empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also remember saying, he said that children should learn poetry by rote. Oh, yeah. That was part of his big project. So history yeah. was a big part of that. He wanted this return to traditional teaching, uh, essay writing, um, and particularly in history, a return to narrative teaching. Mm-hmm. So from the ages of you know five until you were 18, you had one long story going year by year. Um, and he said about the empire, like too much history teaching is informed by post-colonial guilt. Um, and you know, it, like he he included kind of criticisms of Labour voting teachers and their unions in yep. all of his thing, that like traditional dog whistle, um, and criticised the history discipline generally for teaching quote Mister Men stories that removed Clive of India and Wolf of Quebec. Uh, it was a general from the Seven Years' War. Wolf of Quebec is James Wolfe. Yeah, oh, he, it was like one of those kind of like uh, American, Native American, Canadian, British, French dust-ups. Okay, yeah, uh, and he was this like great hero. Um, so he sought to uh, re-engineer the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, his new curriculum would be uh, was heavily criticised at the time. It contained almost no world history. Kids were expected to proceed from the history of Britain from the Stone Age through to the fall of the Berlin Wall, learning narratives and events without developing the critical skills to analyse them. Uh, There was this increased emphasis on the lives of the great men, such as Disraeli and Gladstone and Clive of India. As you can see, ancient Britons, (laughs) the way they built a hut, so much better than the way the French did. But the difference is as well, you're teaching that stuff to six-year-olds. Yeah. You're not teaching like Tudor or anything like that. He kept going on about how um, teachers would like tell kids to go and make collages mm-hmm. of like uh, like Tudor houses yeah. or, or you know go and draw your favourite Tudor yeah. dress up person or something like that. Yeah. Um, which knowing those kind of myths, the Barbar Black Sheep urban myths, yeah. uh, like loony loony left myths, was probably slightly over exaggerated. Um. I remember, I think pretty much on average, it'd be once a year that Lily would do a collage in school for history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you sound like that. Mm. <clears throat> there was a huge stink brought up about uh, the fact that Mary Seacole would mm. be excised from the from the curriculum. She was eventually let. Uh, they eventually included teaching yeah. in her in the uh, thing, and the rumor had it that in a first draft of the curriculum, the Industrial Revolution got half a sentence. Because the backdrop to all this is that history teachers don't have a lot of time. Yeah. The national curriculum pencils in a lot of stuff. Yeah. So you'd be whizzing through this particular mm-hmm. story rather than focusing on one topic in depth and learning yeah. the skills to actually be a historian. You would just be learning a story and yeah. then you'd get to the end. Yeah. It would be like waiting two years for Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and there were actually accusations from uh, some of the uh, academics who helped draft the curriculum that the uh, eventual 
document were, bore no relation to the draft that they worked on. <laughs> uh, that they had worked at, like, like between them working yeah. on it and publication. Um, eventually, kind of opposition forced Gove to kind of row back on the proposals. Um, and they kept it in a way that wasn't that, that could focus on topics and focus on skill, like developing critical critical skills, and on kind of themes rather than just a literal fucking storybook. Yeah. Um, but what mattered to Gove was not just that the empire needed to be taught, but it needed to be taught in an imperial way. Yeah. So he did English at Oxford, and I'm pretty sure he understands what is meant by the medium is the message. Hmm. You know. Learning about it in that way establishes continuity. It establishes a narrative. Mm. Now, once you can do that, you can insert certain bits because you can't possibly tell the whole story. It makes it a lot easier. And, you, and like I say, you're not focusing on topics and themes. It makes it a lot easier to develop kids' knowledge of like English or British history as a story with a beginning and an end, which is what they've always wanted. They've wanted good little citizens yeah. who believe that they are part of something something bigger. And yep. that necessarily involves excising any kind of um, negative discussion about the Empire. In fact, um, there was a study produced in 2016 that refuted Gove's assertion that teaching the Empire was anti-British um, and it was informed by post-colonial guilt. Uh, it came out that it was generally balanced, non-triumphalist, without painting the British Empire as fantasy villains. Um, but that at the same time, because students are more often taught about sewers and the decline of empire, it leads to students thinking that it's a phenomenon confined to the 19th century. And in fact, only one head of department in the study said that empire was taught as a bad thing and treated as a study of exploitation. Um, but, the thing, yeah, to, but to uh, pro-empire Tory, that is... Re like that would be too much. Yeah, I mean, you, your daughter went through um, kind of because like, I I don't remember studying anything about the British Empire. No, like I don't remember anything about the Empire at all. And like you, the house that you're in was named after an Empire butcher. Yeah, because we were like we we both went to um, like a grammar school, like a selective yeah. grammar school, like eleven plus grammar school, right? Because um, Kent was one of the last places that yeah, had loads. that had the eleven like, plus. Medway is a shithole, but Medway has. Loads. Well, it had, well, it, it, had loads it had the last definitely. elements of that like selective yeah. education yeah. Uh, stuff, and so like it it had all this old tradition, and so mm. you had like the 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 house I was in was called Gordon House, named yeah. after Chinese Gordon. Yeah, but I don't <laughs> remember them teaching us anything about. But I do not remember studying the British Empire at all. Right. Maybe a bit on slavery, right. but I really liked re I really liked history and went on to well, study yeah. it later on so I pro might have just read that in the textbook yeah. I might have just read the whole textbook yeah. I don't remember any of it I did teach up to Jesus um, but you, you, your daughter obviously came yeah. through the austerity years mm -hmm. in, in primary and secondary education mm -hmm. um, d did she mention learning no. anything about no, the no, empire? no she's never had anything um, she's just well she's almost finished her A level in history now uh, yeah. no I mean, I know that, that they, no. the part of the part part of the opposition to that even conservative historians um, opposed Gove's reforms was that it was too prescriptive. Mm. It rather than the national curriculum, which is like a big bag of topics that yeah. you can pick out and you choose for each yeah. year what you're going to teach, allows some flexibility. He was demanding that certain yeah. things be taught and at the expense of, of everything else. Mm. So um, obviously, there's always the, the 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 kind of case that you will not learn about the empire. But it does also speak to a kind of a larger 
like amnesia certainly up until like I say the two, the early 2000s I think mm. um, and the kind of reinvigoration of interest in the empire largely came about because of the popularity the kind of increased popularity of popular history so Gove yeah trying to reform the ed- education curriculum um, s- definitely views that kind of the, the, the topic based national curriculum as a less rigorous mm-hmm. way of, of doing history basically he wanted a history that fucks yeah. was his whole kind of thing. Again, bringing it back to that vitality thing. You find vitality in positive portrayals of the Empire. Yeah. You know, you, you get your mojo back. Um, and really, if they wanted pro-Imperial history that fucks, they couldn't do any better than Neil Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um, who, there's a story about um, him, Ferguson, doing a, a talk at... Um, the Hay and Why Festival and Gove being in the audience and him asking questions saying, Oh, when can you come and when you well, when can you come and design my curriculum? And he actually <laughs> like that was the original I don't think he did it in the end because Ferguson knows where his money is, which is yeah. in, in the US. Yep. Um But uh, yeah, he, he was like, Oh, this feels like a job interview and it's oh. like he was gonna redesign the whole the whole uh history curriculum. That would have been delicious. Um Michael Gove actually turned to originally to two historians um, to rewrite the history curriculum around this kind of now, like reinvigorated imperial glory. Um, one of them was Neil Ferguson, who we'll talk about in a sec. The other was Andrew Roberts. Andrew yeah, Roberts that. is a conservative historian who... Uh, so he criticised, we talked about Caroline Elkins last week, uh, her book uh, Britain's Gulag, and yeah. she released a subsequent book called Imperial Reckoning, which Andrew Roberts described as committing blood libel against Britain. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as a British historian, I'm an expert on blood libel, seeing as we invented it. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, that's like... Well, well, like, there's a thing that, you know, like, fash and, like, the British have, like, this fucking, like, we talked about in the last episode, like, this tendency to try and put ourselves as, like, the underdog and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But to try and portray the British Empire as, like, being treated like the Jews have throughout history, it's a bit fucking rich. Do you remember that moment when the British said, let my people go? Oh, no, that's people always saying that to us. Well, because they distance themselves or they think that they're distancing themselves from the kind of tropes of, of Nazism as it existed in yeah. 1933 to yeah. 1945. They think they're free from being a huge number of a huge amount of the political establishment being fash adjacent. Mm. You know, they think that's a kind of get out of jail. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this Andrew Roberts, uh, he also defended the Amritsar massacre, <laughs> suggested that Boers in British concentration camps died because of, quote, their own stupidity. And uh, he also, at one point, addressed the expatriate South African Springbok Club that flies the pre-1994 South African national flag and calls for the re-establishment of civilised rule throughout the African continent. Roberts responded by saying that he did not realise the Springbok Club was racist when he took on the speaking engagement. The old re-smog defence. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, oh my god, I love the one of like I didn't realise it was racist. Like I was just sitting there, it was just like we're you know we're in our tuxedos. Someone got out the horn of Odin. They sounded <laughs> the cry. Um, you know, then they beat the ceremonial gollywog, 
and started talking. I didn't realise it was racist. Yeah. I thought I was just an a alternative folk gig. I thought they were just interested in ruling South Africa really, <laughs> really well, regardless of race. That's what they're really saying. Isn't yeah. it? I just, they're fans of good governance. Mm. Look at that constitution. It's fucking great. Just fans of good governance and Burzum. <laughs> so that was one of the guys who he was going to get in, one of the historians <laughs> he was going to get in. The other was Neil Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about him before on the pod, and we talked about him briefly last week. Um, he was very much, I think, uh, redacted, Johan Harry, um, described him as the court historian of the US imperialist right. Mm. Um, it's his kind, of, his kind of rise to prominence happened around 2003, Iraq War, liberal interventionism, etc., etc., Um the war on terror is kind of expanding beyond its immediate kind of, you know, revenge for 9-11 phase and getting into proper kind of uh, like maniacal world reshaping yeah. phase, that kind of thing. Um, Neil Ferguson publishes a book called Empire that argues that on balance, the British Empire had been a good thing and that empire is more necessary in the 21st century than ever. I've now seen that, that on the bookshelves of some genuine dangers. Like yes. That. Me, for instance, I do have a. I do actually have a copy. I oh, know you do. You're a genuine danger. <laughs> True, <laughs> but not for that reason. <laughs> um, and he kind of gets this past. He is, it is a very popular book, but he he kind of a lot of academic historians criticise him, but he does take up a lot of their a lot of criticisms of the imperial project and imperial historiography as it's gone along. So mm. he's. Um, picks up on the like the fact that the world wars were uh, Europeans doing to the, each other what European states had already been doing to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that kind of thing. He admits that. And he's very much a, um, uh, you know, he, he, I think at one American speech he said to an American audience, you are the Redcoats now. Yeah. But his whole thing is that you are the Redcoats now and you should start acting like it. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's he. Uh, another thing he said was uh, he believes in Marxist class conflict. It's yeah. just he's on the side of the yeah, bourgeoisie. That's the, that's the one I always remember. It, a slight, con- maybe a slight contrarian before his time, but mm. there's not a lot of pivoting. Weirdly enough, in his position, he yeah. genuinely believes that. Yeah. If he has to be on the side of evil to maintain order, that's what he's going to do. Um. And yes, so he maintains that the British Empire was essential for modernity to have been brought about. And any violence that was done in in that cause was necessary violence. Mm -hmm. It it led to a a good end. Uh, In the actual book, he omits quite a lot of the earlier centuries, as well (laughs) as not mentioning Kenya, the country of his birth. Yeah. Weird that. Just weird how he could just slip his mind that he didn't... He really kind of (laughs) focuses on the 19th century and not anything that comes before it. But there we are. Um, and over the years, over the kind of decade um, up to his his book 2011, uh, his book in 2011 called Civilization, mm-hmm. um, he starts melding his pro-imperial attitude into the kind of into the kind of theme of like Western ascendancy. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough that it was the British that you know ruled the world and dragged the world into into civilization. It did it as part of a Western project. That that book, Civilization, is about it's the six killer apps one. Yeah, it's like medicine, uh, banking. Uh, I can't remember the rest. White supremacy. White supremacy. <laughs> Judeo-Christian um, values. Yeah, um, and it's interesting that 
his rehabilitation of the British Empire is is kind of as part of a unified Western he- hegemony, because of course the actual history of the British Empire is one of constant competition mm-hmm. with other empires. Now there is obviously, as you go along, a racialized hierarchy of white and non-white, um, but there's like World War One is intense imperial competition. World War Two arguably is it has elements of that as well mm. about who is going to rule Europe and therefore the world. Mm-hmm. These are these are kind of is intra imperialist conflicts. Um, um, when he was actually tasked with designing this curriculum, um, he took a lot of uh, flack about his, his views, and he was like, "Oh, can't we get beyond this right wing Eurocentric uh, historian crap?" Yeah. Um, Except, of course, he actively kind of promotes the idea that he is Eurocentric because the world is Eurocentric. Again, he's mm. he wants he he's not that bothered about being the villain. Yeah. Um. In a way, and it is interesting, like that these 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 competitions over over narrative and continuity. The idea that history teaching and and teaching about the empire is better served by having one single story. It goes beyond just um. Like the classroom, like mm-hmm. educate, like formal education, um, it you can see it, it kind of links into into a, a lot of other stories and crucially links with modern political developments. Like like the way I said earlier that if you can establish a continuity going back, if you can see the way the arrow has been pointing this whole time, and you're in this moment, then you can suggest the way that the arrow points forward. There is a fu- I've been trying to rack my brains. There is a fucking Orwell quote: um, "Who controls the past controls the present. Yeah, like Who controls the present controls the future." That that thing. Yeah. Um, and it's it's you can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to maneuver like Ferguson is a reasonably rigorous historian, but his focus and his exceptions mm-hmm. are the things that are turning this narrative, this continuity about the empire, into a direction to march forward, as mm-hmm. well as just be applicable to the lessons learned from, from the legacy of the empire. Yeah. Um, and then later on in the 2010s, you have, um, you know, the, the, the war on terror has kind of slumped into this, the morass that we're, the forever war that we're, we're currently sitting in, you know, sectarian violence, uh, limited bloody interventions, proxy wars, those kind of things. And the rise of a vicious anti-immigration rhetoric, the, the, the collapse of the, of the economies of the West. Um, and the rise of the neo-fascist alt-right, who kind of appropriate the most like violent white supremacy inherent in these arguments, yeah. and are taking them forward. They're taking what was the implicit logic of the war on terror, and just making it explicit. Yeah. Um, in uh, 2017, there was a YouGov poll um, that was widely touted that uh, asked people two questions about the british em- uh, asked two questions about the british empire it came out 59% thought the british empire was something to be proud of only 19% thought it was something to be ashamed of additionally almost half 49% thought that former colonies are better off for having been colonized by the british now that's a, a quite a sea change there those questions i don't couldn't find any polls where those questions have been asked exactly mm-hmm. but there was a 1997 gallup poll uh, that revealed that 65% uh, did not know which country Robert Clive was associated with. 77% didn't know who Cecil Rhodes was. And 79% could not identify a famous poem of Rudyard Kipling. Uh, 47% also thought Australia was still a colony. So, you know, it, they are two different questions, but they are kind of indicative of the way that the British 
empire, like study of the British Empire, has kind of moved out of amnesia into being used as a particular political project. Yeah. The most recent guy to have tried to to try to do this um, is Nigel Biggers. Now he's a theology professor at Oxford, and he launched this thing called the Ethics of Empire Project. Uh, its aims were to quote trawl the history of ethical critiques of empire, test the critiques against the historical facts of empire. All right, yeah, that's a weird way of phrasing there. <clears throat> and through this, to develop a modern Christian ethic of empire to support a morally sophisticated negotiation of contemporary issues, such as military intervention for humanitarian purposes in culturally foreign states, the cohesion of multicultural societies, and settling imperial pasts. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. There's no agenda there. That's what I like. It's also fucking neutral. Yeah. I just love it. It's nice. It's as apolitical as our armed forces. <laughs> Um, he's also, and he was kind of roundly attacked for this yeah. um, as kind of, uh, you know, the, Evil. The, the social movements brought up in the wake of the kind of 2010 credit crunch mm-hmm. and Trump and everything and kind of have more sure footing about the ways that they can culturally uh, decolonize things and, and, and influence discourse. Yeah. Um, when criticised, the right-wing press rounded on his critics as bullies. The Daily Mail described Bigar as the latest in a long line of eminent academics to be shamed online. Um, so he's immediately been put in what we now recognise as the, the... It's not even strong enough to say politically incorrect yeah. category anymore. Because that's... When was the last time you heard like people talking about political correctness as if it was the worst thing? Because it's moved on. No, it's, it's the, 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 the vocabulary's moved on from that, hasn't no, it? No, it obviously doesn't. Like dark enlightenment. No, it obviously or... does it all the fucking time. Yeah, really. Yeah, I've been. I haven't listened to it as much. I have had listened to it occasionally. <laughs> but no, that um fucking tennis pro. He's the worst. Um, no, he's literally the worst person I have ever. Like, he is worse than Nigel Farage. Yeah. He just goes on and on about political correctness, cultural Marxism, and yeah, but that's but that's the thing, isn't it? It's moved yeah, it's so moved, subtly that the the most extreme the language has gotten a lot more extreme yeah, around definitely. that kind of stuff. Definitely. Um, and Biggers since done um, interviews with Quillette, claiming he has to hold his seminars on imperialism in private. Uh, as if he's, you know, trying to wear his attempt to, you know, re. I'm just having a discussion. I'm just, I'm just talking. I'm just interested in free debate. Yeah. You know that kind of shit. Yeah. Like Neil Ferguson didn't really do that. He didn't push that as much. No. Now it's possible because he had kind of a well-paid and he, a, he had a pretty arrogant kind of. He didn't do humility that well. He never has done, mm. and that's just a personal thing. Mm. Maybe Biggers is trying to kind of. Yeah, plead plead innocence and plead plead for his innocent imperial project, but it's a uh, it's it's very strange. It's like it's happened to a lot of those kind of figures, like the Gervases, the Petersons. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a, a whole category of them, the spiked online style of we're talking about this dangerous, forbidden topic. Yeah, that you know you we have to meet in private. It's a heresy. You yeah, know, it's sexy and dangerous, and I'm a middle aged professor with tenure at a fucking the like most prestigious university in the world they couldn't fire me if they wanted to i love those you know i'm a dangerous rebel do you want to hear my dangerous rebel talk this is gonna like blow your socks off it was good we built trains in india (laughs) boom that's literally like all they do but the it again it's 
not just his he's not only is he not a professor of history now that no. shouldn't necess- that shouldn't you know uh, not allow you to talk about what you want to talk about you're yeah. interested in what you're interested in interdisciplinary studies are yeah. usually really interesting um but what's interesting is the way that in 2011, whenever it was he made this, uh, it might have been later than that, actually, maybe hmm. 2016. What's interesting is that line about the, uh, what was it called? The cohesion of multicultural societies. They're weasel words. Hmm. They're culturally foreign countries. Intervention in culturally foreign countries. Yeah. They're, they're weasel words. They're ex- They match the times exactly. So what he's doing is he's taking his particular way of talking about the empire and pointing a way forward to to modern politics which mm-hmm. is whites only. Yeah. That's that's where that that's that goes. Yeah, that is. You the, know, the direction it goes. Um and it's the way that like these a lot of these pro-imperial kind of rehabilitation projects kind of smooth their way into into other matters. They're not being political, they're just trying to find the truth. Mm-hmm. Truth is, in academic circles, there have always been pro and anti-imperial voices recognised. It's just nobody reads them. There's nothing forbidden about talking like uh, about specific aspects of the empire that were um, that people want to paint as positive. Hmm. If they want to talk about the extension of trade networks or train networks or, or whatever into into Bengal. They have always been free to do that, and they always have done. Mm-hmm. For example, so Edward Said's book, Orientalism, mm-hmm. on uh, the West in its imperial way, like objectify, like producing, making cultural reproductions and objectifying the people of the Middle East to better rule them, mm-hmm. right? That's basically what it is. Like a few years after that, there was a book by um, David Canadine called Ornamentalism, which said that, yeah, they're objects, but look what pretty objects they are, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Like and that was that was like a that was just a book that was out. It wasn't repressed. Yeah, we objectified. He's dumb as fuck. Yeah, we objectified the East, but look at our gams. <laughs> he's he's dumb as fuck, but he I, I don't think he he was wrong. Yeah. And probably pretty racist about it and should be opposed. Yeah. But like it's not like these things were not discussed yeah. before. And they get you know? published and shit. Yeah. Um what's interesting is two things. There's the hidden the hidden stories that they feel that they're uncovering. Yeah. Prim Vada Gopal, um, uh, a professor at uh, at Cambridge, uh, no at Oxford, I think. Sorry. Cambridge, is it Cambridge? Yeah, at Cambridge. I think so. Um, has pointed out that like for all of these white safe white men trying to rehabilitate their racial projects, yeah, um, the real hidden stories about the empire have always been the ones of the the subaltern, hmm. the the of resistance to the empire. These are the stories that don't don't get told yeah. as much. The stories of the empire builders, these are not repressed. They have literal statues. Yeah. They have reams and reams written on them. They don't need to be uncovered. The second bit is the idea that the opposition to Nigel Bigar's particularly pointed, like that project is pointed in a particular direction. The idea that anti-imperialism is anti-imperialism because it looks too closely into the workings of it. Hmm. Quite often, um, the opposition to people like Big Oz has come a, has come from academics who are saying straight up, you're wrong. Hmm. You are painting this in a particular way that suits whatever, like, uh, it's racist and, and, and paints it in a particular 
particular way that satisfies your particular objectives. Um, and what they want is what they've done is they've produced evidence, they've produced papers, they've done research, they've done like archival research and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But with kind of the most pro-imperialists, what is anti-imperialist is, like I say, looking into and properly researching the empire and seeing it for what it was. Yeah. Because frankly, for what it was, was a bloody project for all of the good things of like trains. Yeah, it's like the trains, <clears throat> where were they going? Yeah. What, what were they direction and why yeah. were they there? Yeah, just because we left them, just because we didn't clean up after ourselves, well, it doesn't mean it was a gift. Yeah, for 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 Gove and all that lot, not telling the story that they want to tell mm. is the anti-imperialist act and is yeah. therefore for completely unsuitable for public public consumption. It's not mm. the public interest. Um, so you can see that kind of. This fascination with the empire as a kind of contested battleground has has started to spill out into into definitely into popular culture as well. Mm -hmm. um, there are, com in compared with previous decades, there's a shit ton of of documentaries on aspects of the empire. Interestingly, they're never really linked up into any kind of coherent like uh, like globe spanning. I mean, they may talk about things that span the globe, but they're never spoken of in imperial terms, mm -hmm. interestingly enough. There's lots of kind of... Like, there's loads on India. So, like, Dan Snow has a virtual cottage industry mm -hmm. on kind of transport documentary, like <laughs> history documentaries and, and in India, and he's done Congo, I think, as well. Um, but uh, there was uh, Amit, Amit Chowdhury in The Guardian um, described most of the kind of new wave of documentaries about the british empire as uh, they feel like a private conversation some english people are having with each other mm. which is probably what they are because it's dan snow it's in the tradition of all bbc documentaries it's basically a travel log yeah they dress him up in the old chinos or the cotton trousers the rumpled cotton shirt mm -hmm. the michael palin special yeah um and he goes around these beautiful places these like and does like a holiday brochure um reciting of some stuff yeah. and they won't actually deal with the ways in which the British interacted with it or when they do it's very it's very focused on individuals and very focused on discrete parts of the empire mm. you know it's, it's yeah, very strange the way they do it like um, I remember there's a for all of this like because he isn't he wasn't perfect at all mm. this, um shit shit um Anthony Bourdain Yes, his um, yeah. cooking program where you go to all the place. Mm. There's a really good episode in the Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, yeah. where he, the whole point is he goes on this boat journey yeah. to this last Belgian facility mm -hmm. that is still being run now by the people who did work there who were just oh, left. Wow. But, um, it, like, I've never seen that kind of coverage of a British colony, former colony. By a British documentary maker like that, like properly talking about what happened. To, it seems to, to be. It seems to be because he wouldn't stop talking about rightly. There's just the years and years and years of strife in the Congo, which mm. are directly the result of the Belgians. Because they talk, they I mean, there are certain topics they're allowed to approach, like slavery. They are allowed to approach as a, a, a kind of irredeemable wrong that mm. has been established. Mm -hmm. Um, but they will always mention the kind of the British ended the slave trade, that kind of shit. Yeah. And they will say that while sitting on slave on the old slaver's dock. Yeah. 
in um, the East End. That's usually yeah. where it will start. And then they'll like have a picture of a wooden sailing ship. They'll be doing yeah. the East India Company and they'll yeah. end up in India and they'll start talking about trading posts. Yeah. And then if they go any further than that, they will talk about, say, the... Uh, they won't talk about the establishment of of kind of imperial control over India, for instance. Mm. But they will flash to like Amritsar. Yeah. And then they will say, and then the troops came out. Yeah. Without ever asking where the troops came from. Yeah. You know? There's no linkage either either narratively or kind of conceptually of how this this happened. And it does lead people to do like for a long time there's been a a notion that the Empire was stumbled upon. I can't mm. remember. It was like a 1930s MP said it, yeah. phrased it that way. But uh, the British are the first people to stumble into an empire. Yeah. As if it was... Now, it was piecemeal. Yeah. It was maybe not always planned, maybe in response to things. But it had a definite um, logic to it. Yeah. And that logic was economic, military domination over those they ruled and installing racial hierarchies. These things are not unknowns these yeah. things are, 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 are there yeah um i mean if you look at like other other kind of popular culture featuring the empire like there's a lot in the kind of 30s um especially around the time of the kind of second world war when you started producing like propaganda films mm-hmm. and, and things like that of martial glory interestingly enough the uh there's a film called um the lives of the bengal lancer hmm. um from like 39 um, which was kind of introduced as like a kind of British war film, basically. Uh, it's Adolf Hitler's favourite film, <laughs> apparently. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, you get other other kind of pieces, and the actual critical pieces are, are, are very, very rare. I mean, think of conceptually like War of the Worlds. Hmm. War of the Worlds is a kind of a vaguely anti-imperial hmm. analogy. Hmm. You know, foreign... Yeah. discs come and, and wipe everything out but they have a simple weakness yeah. which is you know the, co- the cold as carried by people in India yeah, uh, stuff like that um, it's not really until the 60s that you kind of get like nostalgia films and, and TV programs you've got like Lawrence of Arabia Zulu that film this uh, cartoon with uh, yeah. Charlton Heston um, The Man Who Would Be King mm. as well Um it you know they felt dated at the time even i think maybe but they did carry a certain notion of the of the empire as a set of individuals in circumstances yeah rather than a particular project no, i'm yeah. not asking for films to you know all be yeah it, it, uh, you need characters and and story and that but it it's it doesn't suggest that they have uh, that during and after decolonization they are putting the empire behind them yeah, you know, yes. stuff like Zulu and Zulu Dawn, in yeah. Zulu Dawn, which is about the the defeated Sandalwana. Yeah, that happens just before Zulu, which is Rourke's Drift. Um, even that is kind of heroic last stand stuff. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like it's a mass. It's it's that thing of Zulu's one of those ones that always sticks in my head about the Empire hmm. because it's just. But again, it's putting the British in the position of underdog. Yeah. Lucky underdog. Uh, they even do it in fucking the other film that I thought of in this category in this kind of time period is Carrying Up the Kyber, hmm. which is profoundly racist. No shit. It is hugely racist in a way that a society that is learning to deal with Indian immigrants at the time it's made yeah. is cannot be overstated quite how racist that film is. But even that ends on a kind of 
uh, uh, it's, it's almost blending a World War Two narrative in there of the plucky underdog holding out the heroic last stand. Yeah. You know, that's what happens at the end of that film. Oh. It's very strange. Um, and it then you kind of... Bawdy comedy. And it, yeah. <laughs> it always makes you laugh because like, so my girlfriend's um, of Indian heritage and uh, I didn't show her that film yeah. <laughs> um, for, for, for quite a while uh, and she watched it and she couldn't stop focusing on the on uh, Tiffin. I can't remember so, through this film. So... Uh, in like in her culture, uh, tiffin is like just the act of like s- snacks or, yeah, or small bits, yeah. small bits of food and drink coming yeah. out at regular intervals, like mm-hmm. like a afternoon tea or something yeah. like that. Um, now the joke in uh, carrying up the Kyber is that tiffin is they say they're having like afternoon cocktails or whatever, but actually they're going to fuck each other in you know wardrobes and side rooms and stuff like that okay. in the governor's palace, yeah. you know that kind of thing. Um, but for years, I didn't know what Tiffin actually was. Yeah, so you just thought... So when she said, you know, do you want Tiffin? I was like, <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so you're telling me that you get in your education of other cultures from carry-on films has led to bawdy carry-on style <laughs> misunderstandings. <laughs> the medium is the message. <laughs> um so like yeah, you you kind of move through the decades um, from the seventies into the eighties. You start Britain starts changing. There are really no colonies uh, left. Britain starts to not think of itself in an imperial way, but also has a kind of this project of national re- renewal going on under mm. under Thatcher, and mm. they're casting about for kind of things to make themselves feel proud. And like they have a brief kind of uh, resurgence of interest in in India, particularly. Um, you've got the there's the movie version of A Passage to India by okay. Ian Forster. The books by Ian Forster. Um, you have uh, Jewel in the Crown was a series with uh, Charles Dance. You have the film Gandhi hmm. with uh, Ben Kingsley. Mm-hmm. And you have um, I mean this is a bit later on, but you have uh, like Sharp yeah. in India as well. I've never seen those ones. I like the, the Sharp, Sharp India, but yeah, I can't bear Sharp to India watch. Was like very recent. I cut, it was quite recent, wasn't it? It was, it was like late nineties though, wasn't it? No. Really? No, it's um, it's it was years after Sharp had finished. Oh wow, okay. Um, and it's enough. terrible, terrible. Yeah. Like I don't want my Sharp like that. I, I like I could just about deal when he's you know just being angry with his like posh officers and occasionally. No, but like, that's the awesome bit about Sharp. No, that's 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 what I mean. That's the bit that I can yeah. have not him like doing like genuine imperialism. Stuff. I've seen like when about... it's him fighting with the French and like shagging their wives. That's fine. I've seen about twenty minutes of it, and uh, I think he like romances a young Memsab. Okay. And uh, then an Indian prince is sneaky, like that's like that's it. You know that's the that's the thing. And I, I watched it. It's like I've no desire to watch any more no. of this. Um. Yeah. So you get to kind of the 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 modern day, and and like we say, from about the early two thousands, there's a kind of increased interest in in uh, in the empire. This gets combined with the kind of latest wave of period dramas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think about like Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. uh, that that kind of thing. Um, you've had Indian Summer, The Viceroy's House, mm-hmm. both kind of tales of late Victorian decadence. Yeah, you know, in in beautiful Indian countryside, and there's an interesting kind of. They're not comfortable with representing the racism, no. inherent in the running of the empire. So they kind of gloss over it. They still have Indians just as servants yeah. and and white people well, they, as 
do this constant thing of there were racists in the empire. The mm. empire wasn't racist. Wasn't a racist endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the problem. It's like we talked about it in the last episode. Yes. Someone will say a racism and everyone will go, Oh my god, I can't believe you said that. And the target I can't believe don't you know this is the modern this is the modern era it is. We do not judge a man by the colour of his skin. We just install some laws and fences that do. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um there's very few in Africa. Uh few of those period dramas are set in Africa. I can't mm-hmm. think of many. There prob- there probably are some. And like you think about in all of that time, how many kind of openly anti-imperialist films that you could think of, like British ones? Because like the obvious one is like Battle of Algiers and mm. and stuff like that. But like I can think of there's The Wind That Shakes the Barley, mm-hmm. dealing specifically with Irish, which is an anti-imperialist film, um, but obviously has slightly different dimensions because it's Ireland. Yeah. I do think it 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 treats its subjects its its subject topic like differently. Uh, there's Rabbit Proof Fence. The one about um, Aboriginal. Yeah, I watched that. Um... I thought it was very good, but I it it leaves some plausible deniability because by that point, people can claim that Australia isn't part of the British Empire, despite it continuing its white Australia policies left over yeah. from the Empire. I know it had. I think it was it's set in like Dominion status Australia. Yeah, um, it's a it's a weird one because Australia's. Um... Stuff is so profoundly, yeah, and uh, the they're propo- still dealing with that. Australia, the proposition as well, has some anti like, uh, but again, that's actually the only anti imperialist thing that it has there is that the, 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 the English should not be somewhere so hot, they <laughs> yeah. go mad. Um, actually, that blames the sun for for Brit for like English racisms, <laughs> like it just drove, drove them all mad. Um, yeah, like countries. India has plenty of like national stories, like naturally as it would, has plenty of national stories kind of exploring that, that there's a load of, like, I've seen a load of ones where the British are kind of comic, hmm. like played as, as comic villains or very serious villains. There's one film really good called Lagan, mm-hmm. which is about, is, is actively about uh, the British Empire and the hold they have over economies of, of sections of India. It's like... Um, there's supposed to be this tax paid and they can't pay it so they decide to challenge the British officers to a, a game of cricket. Yeah. Um, it's like three, four hours long, great songs. <laughs> recommend you watch it. It's really good. Um, yeah, I even outside of TV and film, just thinking of the... Of, like I was thinking the other day about other things that kind of have imperial context. So like steampunk. Mm-hmm. Steampunk as a kind of it is only an aesthetic, hmm. um, but it has certain conceptual things. Like most steampunk things I've seen have a form of empire. So you think of the game like uh, Dishonored, hmm. um, Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Hmm. Um, there's that role playing game uh, Blades in the Dark. Yeah, that is like a steampunky thing, and that has yeah. empire in it. Yeah, they're all there is empire. You know, I mean, they're, fan- they're fantasy stuff, but it's interesting how those how the the tropes of empire are so easily recognised. Yeah, but none of the mechanisms of domination portrayed in that are ever kind of rolled out into into further further there's, culture. They don't have that impact. There's a thing like steampunk, particularly steampunk is like steampunk is always been well especially like in the last like 10 15 years like cyberpunk is now yeah it's been 
stripped of all politics to just have the yeah. image. Yeah. And so they really go for that. But it, it seems even weird. Like, with, with um, Cyberpunk, it just means it's just kind of annoying. Yeah. But with Steampunk, it rubs well, me the wrong way. It rubs Cyber, me so yeah. wrong. Cyberpunk wrong had something. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, um, it, I imagine it, maybe Steampunk did at some point, but I don't care. And I can't, st- I can't watch so many, like, the lionization of these kind of, like, a fancy lord with a fancy sort of steam-powered ray gun. Yeah. It's like, no, no. <laughs> Could you imagine what Chinese Gordon would have done with a fucking teleporter? <laughs> he would have stolen more things. It's quite often that they, um, those kind of steampunk stories, I'm thinking particularly of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, mm-hmm. actually, that posits what if the British Empire had had access to technology that would yeah. have allowed it to survive. Yeah. And like, that, I, I again, haven't read all of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I've read the oh, first yeah. couple. Um, I mean, does it ever come into it that the British Empire is a force... Like it's portray- It seems to be portrayed as like a force of stability and worth saving. No, Alan Moore doesn't like it. Oh, uh, okay, fair enough. He doesn't like the Empire. No. <laughs> no, no, I, sure. didn't th- I didn't think he does, but it's just that it's interesting how in a, in a, a, a... In a kind of... What's it called? In a like scene that is so tied in with... It's because it's so specific mm-hmm. about... It is about the British Empire. Yeah. It's not about the French Empire. It's not no. about... The German Empire, the mm. Belgian Empire, the Dutch. It is about the British mm. Empire. Like, wholly and completely. And the lack of political content in that mm. is kind of startling. Yeah, yeah. And speaks to, like, that kind of greater amnesia around. Definitely. It's just not that well known. I mean, everything I've listed there, that was yeah. everything I could come off with off the top of my head. Yeah. That's not including, like, just basic war stories yeah, and, yeah. and things like that that have been set in, in other countries or period dramas that kind of talk about the Empire but are just set in Britain. I'm yeah. thinking of like, like upstairs, downstairs, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so much... There's so little content for such a huge aspect of yeah. like British history. It's amazing. Yeah, I think... Well, there's just there's, there's no desire. I don't think there ever will be. But they're, they're desperate for like new aesthetics like when Game of Thrones got popular the number of like fantasy series that started off they're desperate for content aren't they? not content that says we were wrong <laughs> yeah I guess so um, what you'd need is you'd need to have a burgeoning massively well funded well supplied well liked Kenyan TV industry <laughs> doing the Kenyan equivalent of something like you know I don't know I mean, you know the, I mean? The Bollywood, but like I say, Bollywood does a yeah. lot of films. Well, Bollywood where is probably the only place where I can think of where they'd have the, um, in many the ways, money and the desire to do it. But even then, but the, the, the economics idea. of Bollywood don't yeah. work for kind of more serious. I mean, there are plenty of serious Bollywood films um, that do deal with kind of uh, the like imperialism as it as it as it happened to them. Mm-hmm. Quite often it is just kind of a reverse role of like, you know, uh, Ben Kingsley... Uh, no, um, Thingy in True Lies, the... What's his name? Uh, Art Malik. Yeah. yeah. Like that kind of like like cardboard villain yeah. kind of thing. It's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, obviously we can talk about kind of formal uh, like education about the Empire and, and popular culture, but I think it's important also to recognise that while... The British populace generally, um, obviously, they by by extension kind of benefited from mm. imperial super profits, helped build the welfare state, that kind of stuff. 
so many people didn't have direct experience of of the empire as it existed especially like towards the end yeah you you find it there wasn't like i imagine before the wars hmm. there was more back and forth there there certainly was but it was mainly in kind of like if you worked in a port you you yeah. knew this ship was coming from like calcutta or yeah. whatever um it didn't i think in most of the kind of books i've i've read about like accounts of of that kind of thing they they talk about you know the empire that the 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 sun will never set on the british empire yeah. but they only know the british empire through slogans and through otherwise kind of built-in nationalistic things that were very much focused on the british domestic scene so yeah. like if your soldiers win a victory they win a victory and it's great cuz they're british and it's part of british nationalism like now yeah yeah it's not tied in with the notion of the british empire as this vast dominion over which the british state has control yeah you know and like i'm quite interested like cuz i know your family has some history in in half of it does half of your family has some history of the british empire i don't have i've got one of half my family's uh, irish and they have some kind of uh, relation to empire that way but not kind of further further afield than that yeah. but yours does doesn't yeah, it yeah like my it's like so i was like i talked to my mum about it i was asking her some questions cuz like i she's really vague about it all the time and like my gran was, um, and I'd never talk to my granddad, but my gran and granddad were there, bef- were in Kenya before World War Two. Okay. And I know my granddad had a, he was dishonorably discharged during the war for being a drunk. <laughs> and then spent the rest of his time doing um, like photograph safaris. Right. While yeah, yeah. my gran was a teacher. Okay. And they lived outside of Nairobi. I can't remember the name of the place. I think Eldoret. You know, someplace outside of Nairobi. Yeah. Um, so my mum and all of her siblings were born there. Mm-hmm. And it's just... The f- main recurring thing is the not wanting to talk about it. Not right. like... My mum did not experience any hardships. There's like the odd story about an outdoor toilet. Yeah. Big insects. Um, a family servant that they left and probably died. Mm. Um, and things like that but there's never any like she's never explained why my family were there <laughs> do you my, know when they moved there do you know when the family moved not to really it's before it was before the war so, but I don't yeah. I don't know when specifically I know like so I know like I early my, 19 we mentioned it last episode the early 1900s was a time when a lot of white settlers went over there because it was when the state was seizing um, yeah. Kikuyu farmland yeah. yeah it's like so okay so that side of my family not sure about my granddad's side, but my gran, um, like, not, sorry, there was a, it was a squire. It was like yeah. a squire, it was like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, but like, in Somerset, so there wasn't really yeah. much to do, and so they, and I think that's why they went out. Um, but, it's just that, not talking about it. Is it I mean. in a sense of like, uh, like, there's an element, as we mentioned last week, of Neil Ferguson not talking about his Kenyan upbringing, mm-hmm. except to mention how how wonderful it was and how oh, how great it was. 100%. Like hundred percent. Dan Hannon is the same. Yeah. Dan Hannon, where was it was South America and those damn that's, revolutionaries yeah, took yeah, his farm. That's right. um, yeah, my mum doesn't have a single negative thing really to say about it. Um, she doesn't. Re- she thinks the empire is definitely a force. Was a force for good. Mm. Um, I think that that 
myth has been properly pushed into a head because to be fair my grandmother she was a teacher mm. it's hard to like pen that as you know especially when you're a kid seeing that as an like she wasn't running a camp she wasn't running a farm yeah. she was just a teacher and my granddad my granddad spoke a whole he spoke a lot of different languages mm. and was just and like in that proper english kind of way was obsessed with the countryside and the animals yeah, yeah, yeah. and protecting them from poachers and yeah um things like that so i can see what how it was very easy for the for that myth to be built up in their heads about very, that they weren't there for bad reasons it's a, it's a very it is a very um common kind of underlying thing you get with a lot of ex like empire children mm. and if anything like what we were talking about earlier about like the the like the empire now the empire thing now not being a revanchist thing mm. in many ways like in those those people i'm not putting words into your mum's mouth or anything but in a lot of people's minds, when they're talking about how happy they were in Kenya or, or Uganda or, or, or wherever they were, there is a kind of revanchist thing back, but a kind of gloom that that was paradise and they're never going to get it back. Hmm. You know? Yeah. I, I know my, my, my partner's mum is, is Indian, um, but she was born in, in Kenya as well. Yeah. Um, and you know she talks about how you know they had servants and it was uh, it was it was a great time because they were like moderately wealthy middle class Indians. Yeah. And then you know you come to Britain and they're like working well, class. Well, yeah, that's working a, class again. Like, um, it yeah. must have been a bit of a shock because I, I know that when my family when my mum's family came back, they went from living in like a large place mm. in Kenya, which would have I imagine must have been beautiful, to living in Bridgewater. <laughs> in Somerset, um, it's the exact comparison twinned yeah. with wherever it was. Yeah, so you, so I can see like there's, I imagine there's a that 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 narrative happened a lot in Empire Children when they came back. Yeah, to go from being able to run around in these beautiful heavenly conditions mm. if you were white. Yeah, to then coming back to grey concrete, mm. horrible. British public schooling in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can understand why, you know, the idea of what Britain was holds a lot of fucking promise. Yeah, there's a there's a kind of... There's not a lot of kind of colour or vibrancy in post-war Britain. No. And so you're coming from that to... to yeah, I can get that. Yeah. And it's... Like okay, so over the years, my my mum, like a lot of people, has gotten more racist. I reckon. Yeah. Um, and like her and my stepfather both voted for to leave the EU, mm-hmm. both for the same reason: rules, sovereignty, all that stuff. Yeah. Because they just wanted to trade around the world. All this stuff mm. that you know, that obviously would have an enormous amount of effect on. Two people are about to retire. One who was an addiction nurse. One who's a plumber. That was definitely <laughs> going to help them. Um, but I know that the that like the racism has changed. <laughs> like from I think I've talked about it on the pod before. Like my nan being like very much a patriarchal racist. Yeah. Like she was lovely, mm. and she the nastiest thing she would say about anyone would be that. They're a young race and we need to look after them. Literally saying that. She would, <laughs> she would literally say that. 
and she half was like, devil and half child. Yeah, she was very like a very strict Christian. Well, not strict. She was very devout. Yes, and an incredibly caring woman. Right, but she just believed in racial hierarchy. Yeah, and that's very much passed on. And that was like entirely born of the empire. Mm. Look, and it's the way. It, it's weird how it didn't. I don't really talk to my cousins, but I I don't get the impression that it permeated beyond the kids. Right. Beyond, like, my parents' generation. The racism or the... Um, I imagine they are racist, um, because I, I think most people are. <laughs> <laughs> you think everybody's racist? I, I, do, I, I do think most most white people I meet who, who walk with their shoulders... If so if a white person could walk around with their back straight and their shoulders <laughs> up and they could walk around with a pride in their step, I assume they're probably racist because they should be hunched down with shame all the time. <laughs> But, um, well, that's like an interesting thing that does like come out of everything that we've we've been talking about. Like, they always start with the notion of guilt. Yeah, they always say we must stop feeling guilty. Yeah. And these ones, these are the people who never have felt guilty. Yeah, it's but it's interesting that it's the appeal to emotion like mm-hmm. straight away. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's most people. Like, don't feel... I don't think a lot of people do feel guilt about the Empire. And to an extent, there's not... It's it's not guilt that they need to be feeling. Mm. So what happens is when people say, you're feeling guilty, aren't you? You're always made to feel guilty. I can relieve that. It's, It's this direct kind of emotional appeal to be the only person who has a way out of relieving the way that you feel now mm. i think most people feel guilt about like things yeah but not necessarily about this one thing and, and the promise to be able to relieve that guilt is is quite a powerful i don't even of think they're, they say promise to relieve the guilt they're not relieving guilt they're making it okay to boast again yeah that's the thing they've never felt guilty it's i think they, most people if they were i think people if they were confronted with the because that's that's always the stuff whenever you mention something about the empire or, mm. or slavery even mm. like the same arguments are deployed it's mm. like it was a long time ago mm-hmm. uh, we shouldn't feel guilty for it mm-hmm. why are they like everyone else was all right and they were slaves mm-hmm. because all of these are abil- all of these are not like boasting they're repressive yeah. because people cannot be confronted with violence and flaying and 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 colonial like oppression and not think it's a bad thing. So yeah. what they do is they just aren't confronted by it. Yeah. Not only within themselves and the society that imperialism has built, because we're still living in it. It's the global south for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Australia's not in the global south for that particular exact yeah. reason. You know, and I think like you never get to be able to tackle that personal connection to it until you know. The kind of exact mechanisms. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because I actually think most people, when confronted with those mechanisms, would say they're bad. So the the, the tactic for people who want to continue using those mechanisms is to say they actually didn't exist. Yeah. That's what last week was was all about, yeah. and it's what 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 this week was all about as well. But yeah, they just, there is an obfuscation of that. Yeah. You know, it's a it's always finding other routes to push anybody interested about the empire down. Mm. Whether it's railways or whether it's it's trade or or anything like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's us for this week. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at wdtatw underscore podcast. You can follow me at bm bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.